Being a good parent isn't just about having a set of skills or knowing the right thing to do all the time. Ask any good parent you know. They can tell you their pro tips, but most are happy to admit that a lot of parenting feels like winging it. Who we are and how we continue to grow matters because our kids pick up most of what they learn from us by watching how we do things, not by listening to our instructions. So join me on this journey of remodeling our mindsets so that our actions speak to those watching. I'm Dr. Dina Shelton, and this is Remodel Parenting. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Remodel Parenting Podcast. We are concluding our lessons from Classic Research Series today with the Good Samaritan Experiment out of Princeton. Now, the Good Samaritan Experiment was designed to consider what types of factors influence how, when, and why people help. Now, if you're not familiar, in case you aren't, the Good Samaritan is a parable in the Bible that Jesus used to teach about helping others, especially when they are your enemies instead of your friends. In it, he used the antagonistic relationship of the Jews and the Samaritans as a background for the story and told the story of a Jew who was attacked and left for dead while traveling. Three people passed the man over the course of this parable. The first two were Jewish religious leaders. One was a priest, one was a Levite, but both crossed without helping and recognized that the man was hurting or needed help, but did not help him. The last man who crossed was a Samaritan, um, who the Jews hated as a matter of practice. But he took pity on the man, and he checked on him and cleaned his wounds. Then he took him to an inn, and he paid for his care. And Jesus used this parable to command people to do the same, to treat others that well, and to love and care for people who hate them, not just people who love them. In the early 1970s, researchers at Princeton University wanted to explore influences on choices of helping others, specifically designing a study to determine if religious and higher principled thinking would increase or influence helping behavior decisions. But they also were curious about how being in a hurry or being rushed would change someone's decisions. So they designed a study to take care of both. Um, in it, they did this at the Princeton Theological Seminary and used students there because all of them were studying theology. And they set up several simulations to kind of compare the data that they got. When um, they brought the students in, the group of students brought in was provided some religious teaching and instruction. And then they were told that the next task that they would complete was going to be in another building. Now, that task was to prepare and give a talk. Some students were told that they were giving a talk about preparing for seminary jobs, and others were told that they were going to prepare and give a talk about the Good Samaritan. Um, students were asked to leave the building where they were received the teaching and go to another building to complete that task, to get ready to give their talks. And then some groups were told that they were late for the next task, that they needed to get over there because they were late. Others were told that they had a few minutes but should head over anyway. And then others weren't rushed at all. Now, on the way, the students passed a man who was slumped in a doorway, moaning and coughing as they walked by. In fact, they had the man be very consistent in the number of times he moaned and coughed so that he was equally as uh, verbal for all of the groups of students that they ran through this simulation. And then they coded each student on a scale of zero to five 
on the help offered. Zero was not even noticing that someone needed help. One was perceiving that someone needed help but not offering aid. Two was that they did not stop to help, but they told an aide at the other building on arrival that there was someone who was distressed um, on their way over and may need some help. A three was stopping um, and asking the man if he needed help. A four was stopping and insisting on taking the man inside of, of his door there. And then a five was refusing to leave the victim or insisting on taking him somewhere to seek help. Here's what they found. Um, the tasks that the students were going to do, they were particularly looking to see if, hey, if they're going to go give a talk on the Good Samaritan and that is what's on their mind as they're walking, will it increase their likelihood to help? Versus what's on their mind is giving a, ta- a talk about, you know, getting a seminary job or preparing for one. What was on their mind or what they were about to do didn't have any influence. It didn't change the likelihood to help. However, how hurried they were and how much of a rush they were in was very influential on their decision to help someone else. 40% of all people across all of the studies offered some type of help to the victim. However, in low hurry situations where they were not told that they needed to be conscientious of time, 65% of people provided some type of help. In a medium hurry situation where they were told, hey, you've got a few minutes, but you guys need to get over there, 45% of people helped. In a high hurry situation where they were told they were already late, 10% of people stopped to help. Now, while they started out really focusing on the religious thoughts and the helping thoughts with influence in choosing to help someone else, the element of hurrying and being in a hurry became the focus of the results. People who were in a hurry were far less likely to stop and help, even if they were going to speak about the Good Samaritan. Some writings on this, um, after the research was conducted and completed, said that in some uh, instances, the way that they conducted this study, people actually had to step around or over the victim to get to the next building. And the hurrying still dropped the amount of help that was given to 10%. So what can we conclude and how can we think about values, ethics, and right behavior um, when that doesn't automatically translate into action? What do we do knowing that, I mean, every one of these students, they're in seminary, right? If someone asks them, hey, if someone is uh, hurting or it looks like they're in trouble, should you help them? Every one of these people would have said yes. But thinking that and saying that we believe that doesn't mean that we actually act on it. So what in the world do we do with that? Many people say or do uh, say or believe things that they don't actually put into practice. In fact, I would go as far as say all of us do that at times. Um, I've said in many contextual situations that our kids don't learn from what we say or even what we tell them or teach them to think. They learn by doing and watching us act. And so what we do in front of our kids and how we practice in front of our kids actually teaches them how to act. What we tell them sometimes teaches them how to think or how to answer. And we find that a lot of times kids can tell us what they're supposed to be doing or how things should be going, and yet it's not influencing their actions. How many things are more maddening than that as a parent, right? 
one thing that we have to do is consider how many things do we talk about but not practice? Am I the kind of person who, you know, talks a good talk but maybe does not follow through on what I say? Do I tell my kids that, you know, being on time is important or do I get really frustrated at them when they're not on time or when they aren't doing things in the time frame I give them? But am I more permissive with myself when I am not someone who is very on time? Am I the kind of person who expects um, my kids to, you know, to keep their voices low and to not raise their voices when they're frustrated or angry or upset with each other even or with me? But when I get upset, then I raise my voice, I yell, maybe I say things that I wouldn't otherwise say or I'm not very proud of. And just taking stock of inconsistencies or incongruencies in our own practices. It's helpful to consider if we actually believe what we say. Because if we say, hey, people shouldn't yell, but we yell all the time, one one thing isn't true. It's either I don't actually believe that's as important as I say I do, or I am consistently not acting in accordance with my beliefs. An alignment between our internal experience, like in this case our thoughts or beliefs, and our external experiences, our behaviors, is what we call in counseling congruency. And we don't function well as humans when we're not living congruent lives. We say we believe one thing, we say that we do things a certain way, but we don't. We don't do well. It's not just that we don't do well and the outcomes are bad, it's that we don't do well on the inside. When I'm struggling and I am having difficulty with someone, but I put on a smile and act like everything's fine and then talk about them behind their backs, I don't feel good about myself. As humans, we don't. If I say, you know, if I uh, really emphasize certain types of life practices and make it look like I'm doing that, but I'm not really doing well in it at this time, especially if I feel like I have to keep up face and maybe post on social media um, every time I'm doing it or make it look like I'm doing it, like exercising or something else, even though I'm not in that point. It's not the not exercising or not doing the practice that's the biggest issue. It's that I am compulsively trying to keep up the look as though I am, even when that's not congruent with my experience. Um, And so we have to consider how we are behaving in front of our kids and what they're seeing us do, because they're picking up all of the the real rules of life from that. So we may tell our kids, in our house, we don't name call, we don't yell, we don't speak badly of others. And maybe we practice that at home too. We don't yell or name call our kids. But then we get in the car and we start just mouthing about other drivers and talking poorly about people that we don't even really know. We model for them that the practice of not yelling or not name calling is really only relegated to home. And if there are situations where you feel like it's justified, then you're allowed to do it. And we tell our kids, you have to follow all the rules. When you have rules, you must follow them. You cannot bend them. But then, you know, I'm using a lot of car experiences, but then they get in the car with us and we get impatient at a light and we just zoom through it. What we're really communicating to them is, You have to follow the rules, but really in life, if you think and can justify that a rule doesn't have to be followed, you can break it. And it models for them a way of doing things and being rather than um, than 
verbally what we tell them sinks in. Now, the other piece of application here that is even bigger is about being in a hurry. Our level of busyness and our level of hurry changes how we see people around us. Um, It changes how we tap into the needs of others and if we choose to respond to them. Now, being hurt in a hurry or being very busy, it's not just about the activities that we're doing. It's also about what we are allowing to confiscate the real estate of our mind um, is one of my favorite ways that it is talked about. That our mind is a piece of property and that we oftentimes will lease large portions of it to things that really should not be camped out in our minds. And when we are um, taking in things and we are ruminating on thoughts and there's a lot going on inside, that can make us as busy as actual physical activities. But in the same way, our culture highly prioritizes busyness as a status symbol and being in a hurry as productivity. And it is not. It is damaging and dangerous and it actually lowers productivity to be hurried and busy all the time. It increases mistakes. We, you know, feel pressured to have our kids in you know, 17 different activities and to participate in all types of great things. And so many good things are offered to us to participate in. And we forget that no is an important answer and no is an important boundary that provides security for our families. Not that it is just a buzzkill for things that people want to do or want us to do. So we really believe that being in a hurry um, changes how we tune into others, we have to recognize that this is important in modeling for our kids too in how they see help, their ability to help, and that how they pay attention to the needs in other people. Um, it's important for us to model for them the ability to slow down, take care of things, and check in on people, for them to see that happening and not just rushing through every part of life. But it's also really important and can be so valuable for us to pause and consider how often we are hurried and busy and rushed around our kids. And if maybe we're missing cues from them on things they need or think connection opportunities with them, our kids may not be lying in a doorway moaning and crying and needing help. We're not going to ignore that, right? But our kids oftentimes come to us to get a little bit of a boost or a check-in on security or connection or love or validation. And it's not that they need every moment of our time and certainly not that you should be 100% free and tune in to um, every single time they request your attention. I've spoken about that before in these and the importance of teaching patience and having children wait. But there's this other pendulum swing end where we're so busy and we're so wrapped up in what's going on. And sometimes we can just get so wrapped up in the busyness of what's on our phones or what's um, going on at work. And we we disconnect a bit because our minds are busy that we aren't tapping in and realizing that someone around us in a time frame that we could be offering connection needs connection and we're not helping. I really hope that you have enjoyed this whole series of classic psychological experiments and studies and how we can apply them to everyday life. I loved 
doing this series, and I almost didn't because I wasn't sure how um, relevant or how excited people would be about it. But I've gotten some of the best feedback uh, and conversations about this particular series. And so I hope you've all enjoyed it. If you have and you um, feel like someone else would benefit from it, send it on to other people. Follow us and engage with us on social media. If you have ideas about things you'd love to hear me address in this podcast or series that you would love to see coming, shoot me a message and let me know. I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your life and your parenting journey. Thank you so much for listening to Remodel Parenting. If you know someone who could benefit from this episode, I hope you'll share it with them. And if you love what we're doing, like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have topics you'd like to hear about, email us at info at theremodelproject.com.